Hello, I'm Alina. Hello, I'm Janine. We're two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly curious about too many things. This is Sister Doctor Squared. everyone, welcome to episode 7 of Sister Doctor Squared. I'm Alina and Janine is here with me. How are you, Janine? I'm good. Hello, listeners. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording this episode and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Thanks, Janine. And well, this is an exciting episode because we've had another listener request And this request was actually to cover some of Janine's research on bowerbirds. So that's what we're doing. Ah, yes. I mean, let's face it, it didn't take much convincing from me. I'm pretty excited to get into it. (laughs) And as listeners will soon learn, Alina was quite involved in helping with a lot of my field research when I was doing this work. Many stories, many stories. I'm excited too. This is really fascinating stuff. So let's get into it, Janine. Maybe you can start by just introduce us to the Satin bowerbird, what are they all about? Okay, so satin bowerbirds are part of this family known as the bowerbirds. Now, there are 20 different species in this family. I was working on this one called the satin bowerbird, which is found in Eastern Australia. Now, what is so cool about bowerbirds is that the males build these structures called bowers, hence the name bowerbirds. You would be forgiven for thinking they're a nest. They look kind of like a nest and they're on the ground, but they are not nests. What they are are areas that the male builds that then become the focus for courtship and mating. In the satin bowerbird, they first create this little, what we call a platform, which is made of sticks and leaves, and they put that on the ground like this little circular platform. Then they build these two parallel walls that come up from this platform And so one on the left, one on the right, and it's just big enough for a female to sort of sit in there if she was to be observing the male give a courtship dance. But it doesn't end there. So the males build this stick bower structure, and that one that I've described is known as an avenue bower. Other bowerbirds build different types of bowers, which we're going to get into a bit later. But what's also really cool is that in satin bowerbirds, the males then go on to collect what we call decorations. And they will collect in satin bowerbirds lots of blue items and some yellow and white items. And I will read you a list of the kinds of things that they collect, which is straight (laughs) from my paper. Are you ready for this? This is why some people might refer to someone they know as a bowerbird if they're fond of collecting things. This is where it comes from. That's right. So what do they collect? Okay, are you ready? Here. This is verbatim from my paper. Feathers, particularly feathers of the crimson rosella, plastic bottle tops, plastic bottle rings, plastic straws, pens, pen lids, packing tape, other tape, flagging tape, electrical tape, pegs with springs, pegs without springs, small plastic (laughs) UHT containers, ribbons, wire, miscellaneous soft plastic, for example, chocolate wrappers and condom wrappers. Condom wrappers were observed. Uh, Yes, (laughs) miscellaneous hard plastic, for example, containers or parts of containers, bones, including small bird and possum skulls, and vertebrae bones from other animals. And another thing that they can collect is sometimes little bits of other flowers and things. But those decorations tend to be replaced 
sort of every day or two. So they're really transient. They're getting replaced quickly. So the, the ones that we can easily follow are those more permanent structures that I've just listed. The pegs is what I find quite funny, although I will admit I'd completely forgotten about the condom wrapper. That's clearly the most funny item. But the pegs I do find funny because you just imagine these bowerbirds flying into people's backyards and stealing right. their blue pegs. And so if you've ever lost inexplicably blue pegs from your clothesline. They could be bowerbirds in your area. Yes. And I can tell you a story. When we were doing this research, someone was in the car park near the area where the bowerbirds were found and was frantically running around going, I've lost my keys. I've lost my keys. And we went, "Mm, have you thought of checking the nearby bower? Really? Yeah, we went down and yep, the keys were in there and they had a blue key ring on them. Oh, that is (laughs) hilarious. I know. Wow. And um, do you remember there was also a little plastic blue toy gun on one of the bowers? I do now. Yeah, you've yes. reminded me of that. It is so, a little bit sad that so much of what they collect is plastic waste. I know. And we have found that the closer the bowers are in relation to human populations, the more of that sort of stuff is on there. Of so course. If you, if you go to a more rural area, they'd have less. They, it will be mainly flowers, feathers, bones, that sort of thing. So, Janine, why blue things? Okay, so good question. So, for Satin bowerbirds, their favourite is blue and, as I said, a little bit of white and yellow. One of the ideas around why is that the male satin bowerbirds are actually blue themselves, whereas females are like greenish-brown. So one hypothesis is that it's like an extension of their plumage. So rather than, you know, developing this really elaborate, crazy plumage, which you do see in things like birds of paradise, that they've evolved this way of extending it off their body. Okay, so they're quite vain. (laughs) (laughs) Some of those birds of paradise can have such elaborate feather kind of patterns and structures that it does impede their flying ability. Right. So this could be a way to extend the display without having any compromise in terms of being more susceptible to predation. It makes sense because if you've ever seen a male satin bowerbird, they are beautiful. Oh, they're stunning. They're absolutely gorgeous and they've got purple eyeballs. (laughs) Mm, They are really lovely to look at. Yes. And another hypothesis is that the colour that they're choosing to collect and display is usually a colour that is rare for that species in the environment it lives. Okay. So when you think about it, blue is actually quite a rare colour in nature. There's not all that many flowers that are blue. No, one is forced to collect keys and condom wrappers instead. Exactly. So it's, it's, when we're going to get into this, it's a way of showing if a male is able to obtain these sorts of things, he's doing well. And that's a very important signal to a female who's trying to choose. I think we're going to get into this a little bit more shortly. We are. So, so the males are collecting all this blue stuff in terms of the satin bowerbird. And then what happens in the mating season is that females will come down to a like nearby perch near the bower and have a really good look at it. They'll spend a little bit of time checking out this display. And if they like what they see, they will go down and sit inside the, the two, those walls of the avenue of the bower. And then the male will go on to do this really elaborate courtship dance, which is just hilarious. Go on to YouTube, find oh, we'll some videos. we'll put links up to that. Absolutely, it's, we will. It's like, it's kind of like a wind-up robot doll. <laughs> There's a lot of mechanical <laughs> movements and You became quite do good of... at doing your male satin bowerbird courtship dance impersonation. Should I do the I, noise? I won't ask you to do it. No, not on the podcast. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do 
It's it's sort of like a. <laughs> so go go and watch That's go and watch one. some of those videos. <laughs> go and go and enjoy yourselves. And the other thing that's really cool is that as part of the courtship, towards the end, they will do mimicry of other bird calls. That's right. There's so many aspects going on in what these birds are doing. The behaviour is just out of control. And, you know, you can imagine me, this budding little undergraduate science student, as soon as I was exposed to them on a field trip, I just became quite obsessed with them. And I was like, why are they doing this? What (laughs) is going on? It's just so bizarre and interesting. It is. So, yeah, and I still feel the same way about them now. Yeah, so the other thing that's interesting is that the males, when they're juveniles, will still have the green plumage. It's quite similar to the females. So you need to have a bit of experience to be able to tell apart females from juveniles. And it's only when they're around seven years old that their plumage starts to turn to the blue and they're ready to actually have their own display. And other studies have shown for that seven years, they kind of hang out in little gangs with other young male birds and they create these little practice bowers and they practice their dances and will be going around and observing other males in the population and adult males make come in and just trash their bower. Mm. So it's a very interesting system. It takes quite a long time for a male bowerbird to learn the tricks of the trade and be ready to have his own fully fledged display. Mm -hmm. So I've just alluded to there that there is an ugly side, Alina. There is an ugly side to these birds. And that is the males are not simply just going out to the environment and finding the blue items. No. A lot, if not the majority of items on their bowers, they have stolen from other nearby males' bowers. Yes. And that is what I was really interested in when I did my research. And another part of this ugly aspect is that the males will also go down to a rival male's bower if he is not at home and just trash it. They stomp on it, kick it, rip out the sticks with their beak. And you witnessed plenty of that, didn't you? I did. And it, it was quite upsetting, to be honest, because you got to know these birds and you would see them maintaining their bower and they're so fastidious about how they do it and they're always sitting there straightening up this bit and fixing up that bit and then they go off on a flight. They're probably going off to steal from someone else, mind you. But while they're off, another male arrives and, you know, you're watching thinking, hang on, is that them or is another one? And then you just see them start completely trashing it. Like, okay, no, that's not the owner of the bower. That's a rival male. Mm. So it's mixed emotions as you're watching one male having success but knowing that that's probably (laughs) at the detriment of another. That's right. So, yes, it's a fascinating system. And if you're someone that's interested in evolution, you're obviously going to be asking, how did this evolve? What is going on? That's right. And so the males themselves, they don't stick around for caregiving when it comes to having young. So their only contribution is their sperm. That's right. Which means that the female's choice of mate is all about the quality of his genes. That's right. So yes, it's important to point out that, as I said, the bower is not a nest. It's just this thing the males create to attract a female, mate with a female, and then the female will go off and create a nest by herself and raise the young by herself. Right. And of course, the better the bower, the more mating success these bowerbirds generally have. Yes. And the bower quality is indicated by the number and type of decorations. Yes. And I know that another of your papers showed that some of the most sought after decorations were blue bottle tops 
which you mm-hmm. mentioned before, and also Rosella tail feathers. Why, Janine? Well, what we were able to find out, and this has been found a few times, the tail feathers pops up in a few studies. That is a clearly a popular item, and it's also one of the natural items. So that would have been part of this system for a very long time. But in my study, we also found this connection with the blue bottle top. So we're talking like the bottle top on the top of a milk carton, that sort of thing. So what I was able to do is bring back items to the lab. I brought back things that had been stolen at least three times. And then I had a group of things that were from a bower, but had never, ever been stolen. So once a male had it on its bower, it just stayed on that bower. So when we were comparing these two groups, what I did find was that the frequently stolen ones had two important properties. They were darker blue in colour, And we think that's because it's giving um, more contrast between that stick platform and those decorations. So if a female comes down and is having a look, it's just more obvious where the decorations are and how many that the male has. And then when we look specifically at the bottle tops and the feathers, those items reflected significantly more UV than the other items that weren't as frequently stolen. Yes, so there seems to be some UV light signalling going on too. They're using that as a way to potentially demonstrate their prowess at collecting decorations. visual display is particularly striking for these birds. That's right. Okay. And we can't see the UV light, obviously, but when we can use special tools to measure it, we can see it. And the birds can see the UV light. They can see it. And so it's all about what makes for the best visual display. Yes, Okay, so that takes us nicely into the study I'm going to look at, which is one of your studies, Janine, of course. So thanks for the introduction into the bowerbird. And -hmm. now I'm going to cover your study. So this is quite unconventional, but I'm looking forward to it. And let's see how we go. So, and I will point out when you are incorrect. (laughs) This is a good (laughs) test for me. So this paper was by yourself, Mm -hmm. along with your colleagues, James Nichols and Anne Golderson of the University of Queensland in Australia. We know that better bowers with better visual displays attract more females. But the question in this paper of yours is, is the capacity to steal decorations from other males a true indication of male quality or genetic superiority, which you refer to as an honest signal? Mm -hmm. which we talked about in the last episode on crying. So basically a true indication of some underlying genetic dominance. Yep, or higher quality. Because alternatively, certain males might just end up with better bowers simply due to maybe luck and then their dominance in the local area or cluster just becomes like the bower bird's social status quo and that just persists unchallenged. And this would mean that the females aren't actually selecting their mates based on any genetic superiority. It's just to do with who happens to have the best visual display on their bowel, which might not actually be reflecting anything more meaningful than that. Mm. So this is such an interesting research question. And what Janine and her colleagues did was they said, hey, you know what, let's go into an established community of male satin bowerbirds observe them for a while, and then let's put these guys all on a level playing field and see what happens. That's right. So this study was done in the Bunya Mountains in Queensland in 2004. Janine and her colleagues 
observed two clusters of male satin bowerbirds in an area that was a mix of rainforest and large paddocks. There were 31 male bowerbirds in total that they were observing. And the area we're talking about would have been about four to five square kilometres. And bowerbirds do own the same bower for many years. So it's generally very clear which bird owns which bower, just to make that clear. Yeah. Now, the team also marked the decorations in this bowerbird community so that the decorations could be individually identified. And this allowed them to monitor the movement of each of the decorations around the clusters. Now, in the first cluster of 21 bowerbirds, they monitored the decorations daily over three months. So every day, Janine visited each bower and basically did a stock take of the decorations for each bower. Mm. This was to get a baseline picture of who's generally got the best of the blue stuff, but also who's stealing decorations from who. So you could see, hey, this guy has got that blue bottle top that was over at his neighbour's the day before. And likewise, oh, this guy has got some items missing that he did have the day before. Yeah. So Janine and her colleagues also did daily 90-minute observations starting at sunrise. Yes. Because we all know that's when birds start their day. So daily 90-minute observations of each bower to see what the male gets up to across his morning. What's his typical morning routine? (laughs) So, for example, is he present at the bower? Is he off collecting decorations? Is he working on his bower, arranging the decorations? Does he have a female visitor, perchance? (laughs) And each day they observed a different bower so that across the season they observed each bower three times in total. So a lot of bowerbird observation, Janine. Yes. Did you have a favourite bower to observe? Do you remember? I did. I really liked, I think it was 56, if I can remember (laughs) correctly. (laughs) But then one day I remember going down to get the decoration count and I'm so fixated on the tiny decorations that I failed to see a huge python just across the entire (laughs) thing. Do you know, you know what I mean? When you're so focused on something small, you don't see that massive thing right in front of you. Yeah, I think they call that inattentional blindness. (laughs) Okay, that. So, and then I can just remember it moved and just jumping back, you know, several feet in the air. And then I just had a bit of a funny feeling about that one after that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so it maybe it was a favourite, but then you had a bit of a traumatic experience That's there. That's right, and it just okay. became, yeah, a bit of an aversion to going to that one after that. Fair enough. So Janine's life at this time was living in a small cottage in the bush, mm-hmm. getting up well before sunrise, hiking out to sight, ready to watch a bower and its owner encode all of its activities for one and a half hours before then doing a stock take of all the bowers. Yeah, so um, from memory we'd wrap up by, yeah, maybe lunch or something and oh, it was exhausting work. It was. As you mentioned before, listeners, I did join this project for around a month just to help Janine as one of the volunteers. And I can say that this was hard work. It was hard work. And sometimes treacherous work. (laughs) In one of the observations I did, I had finished the 90-minute session and was due to meet up with you across the paddock. Do you remember this? Mm, I saw this, well, what happened was I saw (laughs) this, I think I was late and you're wondering where is she. I had seen this very peculiar dark 
shiny thing in the shrubbery along the ground. Yes, I do remember this. I kept getting closer to work out what it was and it wasn't (laughs) until I got really close that my tired brain finally registered that it was a coiled up red belly black snake. Very venomous, dangerous snake. So, yeah, that's right. I've got my own traumatic snake experience here. (laughs) And I'm bending over with my face right above it. Now, As you've said, this is one of our most deadly snakes. So for anyone Mm. listening outside of Australia, it's not the sort of creature you want to stick your face right up to. (laughs) No. And so my primal instincts took over and I just shot off through the bush screaming. I I can remember that. I was running so fast that I tripped on a tree root that was (laughs) protruding from the ground and then I face planted into stinging nettle. And I'm screaming at you and you're just going, hurry up. I had to explain. Uh, yeah, I just like, hurry up. What are you doing? Hurry up. Yeah. Because <laughs> you were on the other side of the paddock. I couldn't quite work out what was going on. You just saw some sort of commotion. <laughs> but I did love watching the satin bellbirds. They're mm. really charismatic and they just are. gorgeous, as I said. And yes, I was also heartbroken the few times I did see a bower being totally destroyed mm. by a rival male. So coming back to Janine's actual study, I mentioned that Janine wanted to put these guys on a level playing field and see what happens. So this next part of the study is the experimental manipulation. Mm -hmm. So what Janine did, which hadn't been done before, was in a second cluster of 10 bowerbirds, she went out to their bowers very late in the evening when the males were very unlikely to be there. She removed all decorations from each bower and she replaced them with an identical set of just 11 decorations. So this meant that all the males arrived in the morning at their bowers to the same set of decorations. Yes, and I'll, I'll just point out that I did have ethical approval to do this study. Of course, yes, <laughs> okay. we should say just this point that out. study was approved by the relevant institutional That's ethical right. review body. So don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> Please don't go around messing no. with bowerbird stuff if you have them in your area. Yes. And we'll point out that at the end of the experiment, Janine did return all of the decorations to their rightful owners. I did. Yes. So all of the bowerbirds got the same set of decorations. They got one little tail feather, two straws, two plastic bottle tops, two bottle rings and four blue pegs, which was a far cry from what a lot of these males had spent their time and effort and strategy cultivating (laughs) over time, Janine. So Janine took away 604 decorations in total and replaced them with just 110. Yeah. So listeners and fellow squares, if you're thinking, oh, that's, she took all of their stuff away, that's a bit mean. (laughs) Yeah, it is kind (laughs) of. But it's all in the name of science and, as we said, this study was approved. Now, I was lucky enough to be in the field with Janine at this phase of the study, so with the group, the team that went out. Yes, we had a big team. I think each of us went to two or something. It was a highly organised evening and so I'm guilty of being one of these (laughs) individuals who was sneaking out into the night to engage in theft of bowerbird decorations (laughs) and totally manipulate these birds' worlds. (laughs) And the next morning when we arrived at sunrise to do our daily observations, we witnessed their reaction. Mm. And it was something, wasn't it, Janine? It was. It was... I mean, there's the Australian expression stunned mullet. I think that's That's what I would use to describe. They kind of would just 
swoop in and arrive and just sort of freeze and just stare. They just stare stood there. And stare and stare. That's right. They were frozen <laughs> in confusion. Yep. It was fascinating it was. and also sad and also a little bit funny. Yep. But That's these right. poor birds. Now, <laughs> all in the name of science, as I said. Now, mm. Janine then monitored the movement of the new set of decorations over the next three weeks. And what she found was quite fascinating indeed. Mm-hmm. So, firstly, let's just cover the baseline findings to look at what's predicting patterns of ceiling behavior more generally in that first cluster. Yes. So, across the entire experiment, males that stole a lot were also stolen from a lot, which makes sense sense because one, if they are stealing a lot, then they probably have some pretty good stuff, which then makes them a target for stealing. Yep. And Janine, you saw plenty of reciprocal stealing relationships, right? Yes. And sometimes you'd see the same object repeatedly going back and forth from one bower to another, like tit for tat. Yep. And actually, you mentioned this before, that was the way in which most stealing occurred. So stealing back and forth from one another rather than one-sided stealing between a thief Mm. and a victim. Yep. So true competition between specific males. So males that stole a lot were also stolen from a lot because two, stealing requires leaving one's bower unattended, as Mm. you've said, which then leaves them vulnerable to being stolen from and really raided which That's you right. also saw. Yes. And I'll just say for listeners, the area we're talking about here is for each cluster roughly just over a square kilometre. So to fly to another bower, it might have been, say, 100 metres away yeah, as an example. Yeah, about 100 metres apart. So they are well far away for at least several minutes when they do go off thieving. Yes. Now, the males that were the most active stealers had in their collection more rosella tail feathers and blue bottle tops. These are the most popular items, Mm -hmm. as Janine explained before. But although they spent less time present at their bower, so these are the most active stealers, so although they spent less time present at their bower because they're off stealing all the time, when they were present at their bower, they spent more time painting their bower walls. Yeah, so the painting behaviour is really interesting. So a former colleague of mine had looked into that. So this is where they, we call like masticate, basically chew up leaves and twigs and stuff. And then they like kind of, I'll say lick, but they don't have tongue. They kind of like lick with their beak all over <laughs> the inside of the avenue of the bower. Yes, and they paint it across the bower walls. They do, and you can sort of see this stuff, and then it dries, and we think there's also some communication going on between things in that substance and the females because other studies have shown that there is a relationship between the birds that paint more seem to become more successful in in obtaining matings. Yes, so the ladies seem to like a well-painted bower. They do. They like a well-kept bower bird bachelor pad. They do. It's understandable. <laughs> Understandable. So the more active stealers essentially they put their limited time at the bower to good use in That's really right. focusing on what matters to get the ladies. That's right. They're either they're off stealing or they're there doing something very strategic. Exactly. So they're working smart. Mm. What I found really interesting on that point is that the male bower birds that spent more time present at their bowers didn't actually 
have better bowers. Mm. So it's like the bird is there, but he's just not as skilled at bower construction and isn't able to maintain the bower at the same standard as his more sneaky, tactful, efficient, stealing male counterparts. Yes, and you know, you, you could just see within the population, some males are focusing on other aspects of the display. So this could be keeping their avenue walls just neater and more symmetrical. That's something that some of them are putting time into. But what we think is going on is that they are not as successful. So the genes that are controlling their want to do that are there, but they don't seem to be what the females are choosing. So you could think over time that sort of behaviour may start to reduce. Mm, Exactly. So here's some of the first clues that there really is something fundamental that's going on here to distinguish the more dominant males from the less dominant males. So let's go to what happened after the manipulation of bower decorations. So after a period of time post the manipulation, which was about three weeks, Mm -hmm. there actually wasn't much difference in the distribution of decorations compared to before or in the patterns of stealing relationships. In other words, even though Janine had put these males all on a level playing field by giving them all the same set of decorations, each male's collection of decorations ultimately ended up reflecting what he had before the manipulation. That's right. So the more skilled, more dominant males were better able to restore their relative collection, even though Janine had gone and messed it all up. Mm -hmm. And then conversely, the less dominant males had trouble defending their new collection and protecting that advantage that had been gifted to them through the manipulation. Yep, that's right. And what that suggests is that the number of bower decorations a bird has, particularly those sought-after tail feathers and bottle tops, how much stealing he does and how much he is stolen from are indeed probably true reflections of inherent superiority. So these are honest signals for male quality. And that was reflected in the status quo essentially being restored over the course of the three weeks post the manipulation because something real was driving that. That's right. So basically I tried to give some of the less successful males a real leg up. So some males who had been successful ended up with much less decorations. Other males who weren't that good ended up with more. And as we saw over three weeks, the leg up didn't make a difference. It just sort of went back to how it was before. Exactly. And the painting of bower walls also seemed to be an indicator of male quality. And the best males engage in this preferentially in the limited amount of time they do spend at the bower. And this is also to their benefit as it confers a mating advantage. Mm. So there you go. How did I go, Janine? You did well. You Thank did you. very well. I like some of your summaries are probably better than what I actually wrote in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it did help that I was there for part of the part of the project. So that's right. And you know, just thinking over this study has reminded me. Just being there for three months, it was it was really tough work. The thing that really got me through, I don't know if you remember this, is that in this little cottage there was a television but it could only get Channel 9. Yes. And I became just absolutely obsessed with Survivor and The Apprentice. Oh, dear. (laughs) Which are not not shows I would generally like but it was just something. (laughs) And I found them both hilarious. I wasn't to know that the host of The Apprentice would go on to bigger and better things. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that's a bit sobering. I do remember that though. And occasionally when 
if there was poor weather or a huge mm. storm, for example, if we were stuck in the cottage, we would also engage in some experimental cooking. Oh, yes. Do you remember what we I made? I remember we attempted, we, we found a recipe for a chocolate mayonnaise cake. <laughs> That's what I just remember. And we thought, this sounds disgusting, but we bet it's one of those things where it sounds really bad, but then you have it and it's awesome and this mayonnaise is this really important secret ingredient that really just does something. And so we were quite excited and we made this chocolate mayonnaise cake and, no, it was. It was revolting. It tasted like. It was absolutely revolting. A chocolate cake with mayonnaise in it. I'm not it quite sure why we expected anything different. Oh, okay. Good times, good times. So your study shows that this honor signaling really is going on. But what is it that develops these behaviours in the first place? Why is stealing blue decorations the honor signal, Janine? Yeah, so it's all very interesting to me watching what they're doing and it's absolutely fascinating. But why, why are they doing it in the first place? Why are they collecting blue at all? Why are they stealing it from each other? What's going on? So I think the paper that I've focused on may shed some light on that for you, Alina. Fabulous. Yeah. So the paper that I focused on is one that was sent to me by a colleague who knows how obsessed I am with bowbirds. <laughs> it came out just last year and it is called Parallel Evolution of Bower Building Behaviour in Two groups of bowerbirds suggested by phylogenomics and it's by Erickson and colleagues. So a lot of jargon in that title. So let's break down what they did because it's pretty cool. So they're they're really asking how did this specifically building a bower and having this elaborate display, how and why has this evolved? So as I mentioned at the beginning, the family of bowerbirds, it's called the Tylenorinchidae. And there are 20 different species within the family. So that satin bowerbird that I worked on is just one of them. There are other ones. There's one called the regent bowerbird, the spotted bowerbird, the great bowerbird. And then there's another group within there called the catbirds. Ten of the species are in New Guinea. Eight of the species are in Australia. And then there are two species that are occurring in New Guinea and Australia. As we've talked about, the males of most species have these elaborate bower structures and courtship displays, and they're what we call polygynous. This just basically means that males will mate with multiple females in a breeding season, but a female will generally mate with one male. Mm -hmm. So like polygamy in humans. So as we talked about, they have very interesting courtship and mating behaviour. And when we look specifically at this bower building, we've already discussed that the satin bowerbird builds what we call the avenue bower, so the two parallel walls coming up from the stick platform. But then there are other types of bowers. There's one called a maypole bower, and these ones are where there's like sort of a sapling coming out of the ground or a, or a stick, and they will construct a bower around that central pillar. And the most extreme version of this is one called the Vogelkop bowerbird in New Guinea, which we will put some um, links up because it is just the coolest. It basically builds this little hut and it's big enough for you to crawl into. It's absolutely enormous. And they have found that each individual Vogelkop bowerbird has its own little like colour palette and decoration preferences. Oh, lovely. So it's, it's very, very elaborate. And it's in one of my dreams is to go to New Guinea and see that. I would just love it. When they were first observed by people exploring the area, they thought humans had built them. That's how elaborate these constructions are. They couldn't believe a bird had built this thing. Amazing. Yeah. 
So I mentioned that that group called the catbirds. Now they are within the family and that has been shown through some previous what we call phylogenetics where we're looking at genes and molecules to try and establish how these things are related in terms of their evolutionary history. And the catbirds are interesting because they're in the group but they do not build a bower, okay? If you're ever visiting the rainforest of Eastern Australia, you will hear this. It sounds like a cat or sometimes it sort of sounds like a newborn baby. Yes. And that's, that's the catbirds. They're quite noisy. They're very, very, they're very common. You hear them anytime you go to the rainforest, you hear a catbird. So it's very interesting that they're in the group, but they're not building a bower. When we think about evolution, probably the most obvious explanation for that is that the catbirds, they're in the group, right? And if we imagine this group of species, think of it like a really thick tree trunk. And that is going to be the ancestor that gave rise to all the different bowerbird species we see today, yeah? Yes. So we would think that the catbirds, they're in the group, but they kind of branched off first before the bower building evolved and these elaborate things evolved because they're in the group, but they don't do that. So that was like the conventional thinking for a long time. Let's go and see what this new paper has had a look at and what they've found. And I'll also point out that if we go back quite a fair way back, the bowerbirds and the birds of paradise were lumped together. So some of the earliest explanations was we're pretty sure all the birds with these really crazy elaborate courtship dances and elaborate plumage, they're all going to get put together. We think that's sort of one common group with a common ancestor, right? Yeah, that's been shown to be incorrect. The bowerbirds are quite distinct from the birds of paradise and the bowerbirds seem to have evolved much more earlier on in the evolutionary history of the birds. So we can already, let's take the birds of paradise out. We're going to look just at the bowerbirds. So in this study, they talked about the last research to try and work out how this bower building evolved was done a little while ago and they focused in on one particular gene and it's called the cytochrome oxidase gene and it is found within the mitochondrial DNA. So I'm just going to explain that very quickly. Within all of our cells, within all the cells of organisms, are little tiny areas called the mitochondria. They're the parts that do respiration. They enable you to use oxygen and create energy, okay? Mm -hmm. And inside these mitochondria, they have their own genome. Because if we go way, way, way back... We're pretty sure that this was originally a distinct bacteria. So the mitochondria was its own little organism and a very, very, very early ancestor of all life on Earth. We think kind of ate one and it was helping it and they've, they've evolved together ever since. Does that make wow. sense? There you go. So that's why if you look into your cells, every single one of your cells, you will have what we call the nuclear DNA. That's the DNA that makes you look like you, that you get half from mum and half from dad. But also in every single one of your cells, you'll have lots and lots of these little mitochondria and they have their own genome. And when we look at that genome, it is a bacterial style genome. It is very different to the human main genome. Does that make sense? Okay, yes. So this very early study looked at this type of DNA, and a lot of studies will focus on mitochondrial DNA. And when they did that, they found, yes, the catbirds branched off first. The catbirds, there was an ancestor to all the bowerbirds, then the catbirds came, and then after that we saw the evolution of bower building. So cool, it's fitting with what we're thinking, cool, cool. However, the new study has gone on to sequence much, much more DNA. They have gotten 250 gigabases 
That's a lot of DNA. And okay. <laughs> they're looking at some mitochondrial DNA, but they also added in a lot of the nuclear DNA, so that other kind of main DNA in the main part of the cell. And within the nuclear DNA, they have gone and looked at what we call coding DNA. So that is DNA that actually codes for a protein that's involved in how you look or different aspects of your physiology. So it codes for something that is made by the body and is important. And they also looked at non-coding DNA. So within the genomes of all organisms, there are large stretches of DNA that doesn't seem to do really much at all. We're still trying to work out why it's there and what, what it's doing. Some of it has been worked out to be having a role in controlling how the coding DNA is being expressed. We won't go into that now. But the point is, they got a buttload of DNA in this new study, yeah? And they, Sounds like a buttload. They got a buttload and they didn't just focus on this one mitochondrial gene. They've gotten a lot of things, okay? So what they do is they get all of this DNA and use computer programs. Once they figure out the DNA sequence... They can then line it up across all the different species and working out where are the similarities and differences. And that can start to help you work out which things have a more similar DNA sequence. They're probably more closely related. And which ones have a more different DNA sequence. They're probably more distantly related. So let's cut to the chase. Yes, what did they find? With that buttload of DNA. They actually found that when they combined all of those different types of DNA, that the catbirds have basically popped up in the middle of the tree. They're not at the base. Oh. Which I was like, what? Because it's just... So it suggests that they didn't branch off earlier than initially suspected. That's right. And this brings up some interesting ideas around how this behaviour and this bower building has evolved. Because we've thought, okay, there was an ancestor that didn't do it and then the catbirds have branched from there. Somewhere after that, it's evolved and it's in all the rest of the species, right? But this starts to sort of throw that idea into disarray. And, yeah, when I saw this, like, what? Because it's it's just not the way I've always understood it to be. This is the beauty of science. It is. And this is the beauty of the abilities now to do DNA sequencing are just phenomenal. And the the parallel advances in computing. Yes, so this is knowledge that simply wasn't possible before this technology. Exactly. There's nothing against the previous work. It was the best that could be done at the time. But now it's just the quality and the, the how substantial it is is just so much better. So, yeah, so basically the catbirds have popped up in the middle. So then the authors explain that they've got two hypotheses for what is going on. So the first idea is that that the ancestor of all bowerbirds perhaps did build a bower and that it's been lost in the catbirds and all the others have maintained it, which is a very different way of thinking about it. The other idea is that bower building may have evolved twice which I initially thought, This is no. not parsimonious. No, it doesn't seem like it, but let me explain. That was my thought too. I just kept saying, no, no, that can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> you were stunned like the bowerbirds who arrived at their radically different bowers the next morning. I was. So, yeah, they go on to describe that they overall think it is actually that the bower building has evolved 
two times independently. That's that what this paper has included. It is really interesting. So they explain that a really important piece of support for this is the fact that, remember, there are those two types of Bowers. I was just going to say, yes, yeah, so the Bowers yep. would be quite different. They are. So there's the avenue ones and then there's those maypole ones. And there are also some bower birds that just clear a big sort of circular court and like turn leaves upside down and do some other things. Okay, so, like, a, like a stage. Yeah, that's right. So they go on to describe that if bower building as our original idea had just evolved once, that would mean over time there had to be a transition from one type of bower to the other in those birds that have the different type, right? Yes. And they've gone and explained that to do that would have required four steps. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail around that, but just sort of like overall evolutionary steps to get there would be four steps. So in actual fact, it does seem like bower building having evolved twice is actually more parsimonious than the yes, alternative. Exactly. In this case, yes. Exactly. And this idea of parsimony is that the simplest way this could have happened is probably what happened. That's a yes. very important idea in evolution. We have to make some assumptions in evolution and that is a core assumption. And they go on to explain that if bower building evolved two times, that's actually just two steps. Mm. So it is more okay. parsimonious. Point well made, authors. It is. I'm convinced, okay, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> and then back to your original question, why Why has this evolved in the first place? They do go on to say, and especially now, if it's evolved more than once, that's really interesting. It is. This just seems such an extreme elaborate behaviour. And they talk about this idea that the tropics and the subtropics, which is where these birds are found along with Birds of Paradise, they're quite, we would call them stable environments, and there's a low predation pressure. They have a lot of access to food. Okay, yes. So it's it's basically like they've just, they've got more time on their hands for this sort of stuff to, to evolve. Yes. That's how I think of it. They're fortunate enough in their environment to have the luxury of creating these elaborate displays in order to attract a mate. Yes, and, you know, you've got to realise that these things evolve. Evolution is random. New traits evolve randomly. And if they have any kind of disadvantageous effect, they will be selected out of the population. But in yes. this kind of environment, it can kind of just go wild. Yes. Which is exactly what's happened. It's perfectly safe and fine to be collecting lots of blue things. and That's right. Interesting. And very interesting that there's this, you know, while we're all driving to work and cooking dinner and doing all of our things, just remember there are birds out there chewing up sticks and painting and running around stealing decorations and there's just this whole other world going on and it's just fascinating. Well, and there are plenty of humans who are also in a fortunate position to be putting a lot of energy and effort into their uh, <laughs> into their efforts to find a mate too. That's true. There's parallels everywhere. There are. <laughs> Well, that was fun, Janine. I'm very pleased to have got into some of our own research. And yeah. it was fun to start with your work on the satin bowerbirds of 
Queensland and thanks to our listener for requesting the topic. We hope you've enjoyed. And if you have any questions for Janine, this is Mm -hmm. the first time where we have the author of the study (laughs) that we have covered right here hosting the podcast, so please get in touch. It's that time again where we reveal to you our innermost square moments of recent times. So please allow me to go first, Janine, because in the spirit of collecting things that seems completely nonsensical, (laughs) do you recall when I was an adolescent, I -hmm. went through a phase of quite passionately collecting bus tickets? Yes, I do remember that. This was back in the time when you bought a single or return a weekly Mm. bus card Mm -hmm, and when you got on the bus, you inserted it into the little machine and it would print on the back of the card the date and the time of your trip, yes? Yes. And it was just a thin cardboard material with the black readable strip. Yes. Yes, I collected these. Yes, I remember. And our grandmother, whose primary form of transport has always been the bus. She was my main source for my collection. Yes. And because she got the bus so often, I amassed this huge (laughs) compilation of bus cards in a pretty (laughs) short amount of time. I don't remember how long this phase lasted. And our dad bought me a bunch of those folders with the plastic sleeves, the ones with the pockets for... Yeah. Well, it was meant to be for baseball cards. Yeah, most people get basketball cards and baseball cards. Yes, but I use them for my bus tickets. (laughs) Yes. So I have no idea why I did this (laughs) or why everyone was so supportive and encouraging. (laughs) These cards were all largely exactly the same. The only difference was on the back where the date and time of the trip was printed. That's not what I wanted them for. I wanted them for the front, okay? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I I don't know why I'm bringing this up. I have nothing more to say about this this topic. I'm just disclosing it, I guess. (laughs) And, I mean, it's not really related to bowerbirds because (laughs) the difference being male bowerbirds collect blue things to attract a female mate and I collected bus tickets for no apparent reason and for no useful purpose whatsoever. But hey, I may have done a little research into am I the only person in the world who for some reason felt compelled to hoard old bus cards and neatly Mm -hmm. display them in folders? Yes. And I can tell you here and now that one Ladislav Senor of the Czech Republic has since 2008... Mm. held the Guinness World (gasps) Record for the largest collection of bus tickets. Yes. With 200,000 in total from 36 countries. (laughs) Each one is different somehow. So 200,000 unique bus tickets from many corners of the world. Wow. Whereas I had one type from Brisbane in (laughs) Australia and multiple, (laughs) multiple versions of the exact same thing. You know what you should do? You should send that guy one of yours. <laughs> I don't think I have them anymore. Yeah, I was going to ask you where they, where did they did, end up? We did not find them in the great no. clean-up of Dad's house of yes. 2020 listeners. You Footnotes, can hear more about that. Clutter episode. Yes, in the Clutter episode, you can hear all about that. We didn't find them in, in that, so I think where they may they? have been discarded some time Aww. ago. But the memory remains, Janine. <laughs> But the understanding, I don't, I don't know why I did oh, it. Oh, that's funny. I don't know How why I did it. How old were you? Um, 
I'm a little embarrassed to say, <laughs> so I won't. 25. <laughs> no, no. I was still in school. I think school. you were primary I'm not school, sure. right? I did try to figure it out by looking at when were these particular bus tickets mm. in circulation mm. and all I will say was I was older than I thought I was <laughs> when I was doing this. So okay. thank you. That is my inner square and now we're okay. moving on. Janine, what brought right. out your inner square recently? Look, mine is kind of a bit random. Nothing to do with collecting anything, nothing to do with bowerbirds, just something that I've come across recently and I would like to share it with you, Alina. Please. Now, we're going to have to put some pictures up on the website. Alina, I would like you to open up the file I have sent to you because we really need to be looking at this to talk about this thing. So, look, my inner square is that I was recently reading some content. It's been around the topic of what is the self, what is the ego, and, you know, some philosophy and psychology. It's been very interesting. And I came across some work by a physicist and philosopher called Ernst Mach. Now, he was around in the 1800s. And he was also very interested in this idea of what is the self and what is the ego. And he did this self-portrait. So this is what I wanted to talk about, where he did a self-portrait. Now, normally when someone does a self-portrait, it's a portrait of themselves. So basically it's like looking in a mirror, yeah? Yes. This guy said, I want to draw myself in the way that I see myself from my own eyeballs. So I'm trying to explain this, but you're really going to have to go look at the picture. But he basically has done this self-portrait where he closed his right eye and drew exactly what he sees when he looks out of his left eye. So when you look at this portrait, you can see the sort of the left side of his nose and then sort of the curvature of the top of his skull above his eyebrow. And then you, you can look down and see his torso and legs. Yes, and you can see a bit of his lovely moustache, I see. Yes. This picture, it kind of reminds me of if you're having trouble imagining what Janine's describing. <laughs> you know those, you know those pictures people take on the beach where they're lying down on their beach chair and they take a picture of their legs and then they post it and say, is this legs or sausages? <laughs> What? It's a little bit like that. <laughs> it's a little bit like that, except this is far more artistic and it's also got, really importantly, where the skull meets the eyeball and the yes. side of the nose and a bit of the moustache because this is yes. what you would you see if you close one eye and you have a moustache. Yes, you close, <laughs> if you close your right eyelid and look, you can see a bit of your own face, just a little bit, but mostly you see the outside world and you, the rest of your body. So he's drawn that and my inner square moment is me trying to do this on myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard. So I've been closing my eyes, trying to draw what I can see. It is really hard, but I'm having a lot of fun giving that it a crack. That would be very difficult. That is interesting. It is. So everyone can have a look at that and have a go. And let yeah, us know if you have you a go. go, send us in what you've drawn. Send, send, We'd send love to in. see it. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Details of the studies we've talked about will be available on the website, as always, at www.sisterdoctorsquared.com with all words spelt in full. Follow along on Twitter and Facebook and we'd love to connect with you. Okay, thanks, Alina. Thanks, everybody. Bye. See you next time. Bye.